We want to welcome everyone. Thank you for joining us. And this should be both uh, entertaining and hopefully enlightening this afternoon. And um, we want to thank those of you who have submitted questions uh, in advance. We have wonderful questions, but we want to also let you know that if a question comes up during uh, our time together, please submit it and we can integrate those as well. And we're just so excited about uh, how wonderful the participation and the uh, wonderful quality of all the classes and kirtan and concert and sadness. And right now <clears throat> we have nearly 850 computers registered for the whole week. Not just one talk, one event, but for the whole week. And the, many of these are groups of 15 or 20 people. So we're getting up to have a, a lot of participation. And we were just told by our wonderful team that keeps track of these things that there are 350 people uh, who will be involved in the online Kriya initiation. So this is so thrilling to us all. And I'll just take a moment to thank our magnificent tech team, which uh, part of it is the online with Ananda team, Jitendra, Dion, Sagar, and our sound people uh, here at Ananda Village, Bhaktan, who did the remarkable video uh, graphics uh, for many of the activities. So th it, this is really a team effort, and not to mention the terrific classes that have been submitted by our teachers from far and near. So let's begin, and we have, we took the questions and kind of organized them in themes. So Jatish, do you want to start with the first one? Okay, but let's start with a prayer you first. You start with a prayer. Because that's, right. that's the most important of all, to tune in. Heavenly Father, Divine Mother, Friend, Beloved God, Jesus Christ, Babaji Krishna, Lahiri Mahashaya, Swami Sri Yukteswar, Beloved Guru, Paramahansa Yoganandaji, Saints of all religions, we humbly bow to you all. Bless our minds with thy wisdom, our hearts with thy love, and our lives with thy joy and help us be channels for your light to bring it to everyone that we know and to all the world. Om. Peace. Amen. Okay. The first question. We've arranged them, as Davy said. There, um, there used to be a television program called 20 Questions, and that's what we have so far. So we've rearranged them in such a way as to put the ones that are more general and touch on spiritual questions primarily first, and those that are more particular to an individual, uh, assuming we can get to all of them and, and maybe there will be more, uh, we've put them secondly. Okay, without further ado, how to overcome spiritual laziness and internal resistance to change? Well, isn't this the question of the spiritual path? <clears throat> to a certain extent, 
we all have spiritual laziness in the sense that we could always do more. So, and we always have resistance to change. If we didn't have resistance to change, we would have changed already and we would be in samadhi, not needing to ask a question like this. So, how do we overcome, first of all, spiritual laziness? Well, partly it comes from karma and from some scars of the past. If you make a spiritual effort, it creates a habit. And as you create that habit, it helps you form a foundation. And from that foundation, you can build further. But if you don't use your willpower to force yourself to form a foundation, you can't build very much on that. And some people come into life with a lot of willpower and a lot of ability to uh, discipline themselves, others less so. <clears throat> but that is all due to past karma. And so I would say you just have to use your will in order to um, get yourself to get started. The great aid to that is regularity and habit. So I would say for spiritual laziness, to be sure that you have a kind of a schedule, and if you'll stick to that schedule for a period of time, often maybe a month or 40 days. So let's say as a spiritual schedule that you decide that you're going to meditate for an hour from six to seven every morning. Well, if you haven't disciplined yourself, you will have resistance to fulfilling that promise. But you just have to use your willpower. And as you do that, and you set that time and make it sacred and just do it, then it will get easier and easier and easier until that habit becomes your friend, not your enemy. In, in the Mahabharata, there is a great teacher of archery, uh, of the warrior sciences, um, who, uh, uh, Dronacharya. And he teaches both sides. He teaches the good and the bad. He represents habit. So we have good habits and we have bad habits. Well, get Dronacharya on your side of good habits. So form those good habits and gradually it will help carry you along. And the resistance to change is also helped by, by habit. And so that and the other thing that I would say is very important is try to form spiritual associations. Satsang environment is very strong in overcoming these old tendencies. And so if you can uh, join uh, the virtual community, if you have a local community, be with other devotees. Right now we're having to do that with social distancing. But, but the support of others, after the blessings of the guru, the support of others, satsanga, is the second most important factor on the spiritual path. I'll just answer briefly, because I think uh, we'll try to get through all of these questions. Um, 
Master said, the most powerful, since we're talking about Dronacharya and teaching archery, Master said the most powerful arrow in the quiver of delusion is indifference. So when that tendency comes to say, oh, I think I'll just keep reading my book rather than meditate, or maybe I'll call my friend, even though I know I'm supposed to start meditating now. That, see that for what it is. It's a quiver in the arrow, an arrow in the quiver of maya, of delusion, and resist it. And then further, the person asks how to uh, overcome internal resistance to change. Well, that's the whole story of Master's interpretation of the Bhagavad Gita. Arjuna says, I can't kill my bad habits as symbolized by the opposing army. army. I, I, they're part of myself. So this is an intrinsic, don't just think, oh, well, maybe I have this problem. This is intrinsic to the spiritual process of transformation, is to be able to say, I am willing to leave behind me my past mistakes and move forward and embrace a new self-identity. It seems so easy, doesn't it? I mean, why wouldn't we want to do that? But the ego is a powerful watchdog that guards the gates, and it doesn't want us to let go because it likes its position of power. So work with these things, but know they're universal tendencies. And I'll just go on to the next question since it's directed to me. <clears throat> this is, uh, I mean, we can say the people's names, can we, who submitted the question? Okay, so this is from Victoria. She says to Davy, I love your five formulas for success, health, etc. except I'm not quite sure how to use life force in drawing solutions, for example. I know how to use positive thinking Yet applying life force to positive thinking is more vague. How do I know I'm using the life force? Well, that's a great question. And I'll answer it briefly. What we're doing, it's not just thinking. So it isn't going into like a hyper intense state of like drinking three cups of coffee and your mind is just racing. What we're trying to do is before, to enhance positive thinking with life force, meditate. Concentrate at the spiritual eye, the seat of superconsciousness. Lift your energy up. Swamiji um, has a wonderful little book that I helped edit called uh, Intuition for Starters. And he talks about how to draw intuitive um, answers to your pro life's problems. And he said, if you have something that you need guidance on, meditate, get calm, then concentrate at the spiritual eye. This is adding life force to positive thinking. Let your mind hold it there and then project it out, but then let your mind be calm and then try to feel the response. Not think it, but feel it. Intuition is a combination of heart and mind. So try to feel that response in your heart. My own experience is that it doesn't come immediately. It won't come like, okay, I've offered it up, now let me get a solution. Sometimes it does, sometimes it does. But for me, more usually, it will come unexpected. Like I'll be putting away some laundry and all of a sudden, boom, oh, that's the answer. So when the mind is a little bit distracted, I think we, that flow of intuitive energy can come, intuitive insight. And so 
to draw life force into positive thinking to get solutions, meditate, hold the thought up with the spiritual eye, and try to feel the response in your heart. I'll add briefly and then go on to the next question. The flow of life force, first of all, life force prana is all around us. We live in a sea of prana. It is around us. It is in every cell. It's in every atom. In fact, Master said that life trons are finer than electrons or the electronic force. So think of um, astral subatomic particles that infuse everything. It's everywhere and within everything. Now, we can, we can live in that sea, but not really draw from it very much. We, we draw from it automatically. We couldn't digest our food. We couldn't eat. We couldn't think. We couldn't do anything. So we draw from it, but we draw from it, generally speaking, in an unconscious manner. So what we want to do is to learn with the movement of life force to draw on it consciously. And willpower is the real stat that allows that life force to flow. The more willpower or willingness uh, that, that you have toward directed towards something, the more the life force will flow. And so a little bit of willingness, all right, I'll meditate. I suppose I have to. That'll at least do something. It'll get some life force going toward that, but not very much. But if you say, I am going to meditate, and this morning might be the time that God manifests himself to me. Let's get to it. That enthusiasm draws a great deal of life force. So, so willingness is the rheostat. Increase your willingness, increase the flow of life force, and direct it toward any one of these goals that Davy talked about. Okay, Bhavani says, how does one who is a yogi overcome the habits of self-criticism and unworthiness that seem to trouble so many these days? Yes, a lot of people have somewhat low self-esteem. Swami addressed self-esteem in two ways. There's the lower self, which is the ego, and that's generally what we talk about when we're talking about low self-esteem because the higher self, the soul, doesn't worry about self-esteem. It just is. It's part of God. And so coming back to the sense of who am I? Am I worthy? We live in... Um, many of us in a sea of, I don't know, a sea of kind of criticism all around us, even subconsciously. Why do all the models who are modeling dresses or swimsuits or uh, athletic gear, why are they all among the top 1% of the 1% of the 1% in physical beauty? Well, that's because they're attractive. Okay, you can accept that. But subconsciously, people begin to compare themselves. Oh, I'll never look like that. Oh, I'll never have muscles like that guy. Oh, I'll never have that beautiful hair. And pretty soon, 
subconsciously all around us, sometimes from people that we know, sometimes from others, we're being fed a message of you're not worthy. Now, how do you turn that around? Well, the best way is to meditate. The closer you get to your own soul nature, the more those senses of not coming up to other people's performance standards just begin to drop away. You just accept yourself for who you are. You know that you have some ways to go, but so what? Everybody does. Person with the beautiful muscles and the gorgeous hair, they may be more insecure than you are because their livelihood depends on them looking the way that they do. So everybody has their difficulties. Just accept it, but don't accept others' evaluation of you. Work on your own self-evaluation, and if you want to ask somebody for evaluation, try to ask God, who is within you, to help you see more clearly and more perfectly his perfect love and perfect acceptance for you and to work with that more in your life. Okay, I'll move on to the next question. This is from Kim. It's similar to the one Bawani asked. How do you turn consistent negative thoughts into positive thoughts to help you align yourself more to God's vibration? Well, this is, gives me an opportunity to once more uh, remind everyone we have this wonderful new little book that's coming out. Hold it up because I can see. Ah, oh, there you go. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. So this is Stand Unshaken, Daily Inspiration for Living Fearlessly. And uh, it, this is compiled from quotes from our weekly blogs, and then each page has a beautiful photograph of one of Jyotisha's paintings. So if you're interested in... This will be selected at random and answer to the question. Okay. Um, <laughs> Jatisha's watching too many magic shows. Um, <laughs> it, so this is what it says. The secret of living fearlessly is focus. It starts with intention, is built by effort, and gradually forms into a habit, and finally becomes a way of life. Pretty good. And the picture is a beautiful uh, depiction of the spiritual eye. So you can see what they're like. And if you're interested, it'll be, you can pre-order it now. It'll be available <clears throat> now in about a week and a half from crystalclarity.com. So, okay, how? Let's go back to Kim's question. How do you turn negative thoughts into positive ones? Well, focus. And what do we, well, I'm drawing from that, uh, quote in the book. It's very helpful, and I've done this with workshops with people, to introspect and write down what are the reoccurring negative habit patterns and thought patterns that plague you. And it's often it's just people are astonished because it, usually it's not that many, it's two or three of kind of chronic negative thought patterns or behavior patterns, and they were always there. <clears throat> As Swamiji said, when you see a flaw in yourself, don't despair, but rejoice, because it's always been there. You just never saw it before. And now that you see it, you can start working on it. So don't be afraid. 
Don't be afraid to look at your chronic negative thought and patterns and habit patterns and just say, oh, now I see whenever I don't, someone disagrees with my opinion, I react with anger. What a silly thing to do. And I will watch that. And, and once you see it, honestly, it's not that hard to change. But the seeing is the hard part. But again, bringing life force into it. You can't just, oh yeah, I saw that. I know I have that. You have to resist it, resist that pattern. But the first step is to become aware of it. And then just keep persisting. And never, ever identify with your mistakes or your bad habits, or even if you have a backsliding, maybe you've vowed, you know, one of the great social movements in America is uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, AA, where people, you know, they, people who have had substance abuse problems, and they go and they affirm, and they, they I, I have been sober, I have many friends whose life has been changed by that. I've been clean and sober for three months, for a year, for three years, for 30 years. And if they fall back, they start over again, but it builds for them a positive momentum. So I guess simply put, Kim, don't be afraid to look at your negative qualities, write them down, put them on your altar, ask God for his help with them, and then just really take that as your game plan until you really feel like you've got a handle on it and you can, you're stronger than they are. But really the first step is just the two important elements, awareness of them and then asking God for his help to overcome. I'm going to add just a tiny bit to that. It's very good what Davy said. Just don't identify yourself as a person who is your whatever the habit is. Write it down, become clear on it, but say, I have this habit pattern, not this is who I am. And it helps break that identity. This is from our dear friend Asta, who, hello, dear. Um, she says, how can I free myself if before I have to free other six, pe free other, uh, six other people? English isn't her first language. Yeah. <laughs> but she speaks it perfectly, way better than I speak Hebrew. Um, how can I bring six people to God? Well, uh, Master said, just for those of you who don't know this teaching, that in order to become free, we have to free six other people. Well, you can't free six people until you're free yourself. But can you help six people? That's not so hard. So you can start right where you are now, helping six other people or helping 60 other people or helping other people is the key to it, to try to lift their consciousness a little bit. And as you progress spiritually, you will be able to lift people even more until finally the day will come when you have, you're at the doorstep of enlightenment and you've brought six other people, if not to the doorstep, at least to the courtyard. And so then you step over the door. Master said that it, uh, when you free six other people, if you go into, let's say, samadhi, enlightenment, uh, they don't all become enlightened. Six others don't become enlightened. But 
they've, they've become greatly elevated. He said, uh, he used a clever little uh, image. He said that if, if you're uh, in the court of a great king and you're promoted to a high position, your whole family benefits from that, not only yourself. And so your spiritual family are those people that you're connected to spiritually and the desire to help and uplift just as we have the desire to help our family. It happens automatically. Okay. We'll go on to the next one. This is from Prem. This is a very nice question. Two parts. What are the duties of a disciple? And how should a disciple behave, do's and don'ts, so it helps them in becoming a better disciple? Well, just a little preview of future events. We're going to be having two wonderful talks uh, on Friday. Uh, one will be with Nayaswami Anandi on uh, discipleship. And then uh, as the supplemental talk, there'll be one on Kirtani, on the Guru, Nayaswami Kirtani from Assisi, uh, on the Guru disciple relationship. So this will also answer a lot of your questions. But really, Discipleship is everything on the spiritual path. And if, you, if you're a beginner and say, well, gosh, I don't have a guru, then you know what Swami would tell people? He would say, if you don't yet have a guru, work with Yogananda. If he's not your guru, he will lead you to who is your guru. But he's a good starting point. <clears throat> so, and Swamiji, who was a man of extraordinary accomplishments, both in the artistic world, in the <clears throat> world of leadership, and but more important, in spiritual attainment. And what he said in the last years of his life is, I just want to remember, be remembered that I was a good disciple. That's all that's important. And so what does it mean to be a good disciple? It means starting on a practical level, simple level, studying the guru's teachings and techniques that he brought, trying to understand them, practicing them as well as you can. If questions arise, seeking guidance. Something I really appreciated about Sagar's talk this morning when he talked about tuning in to people who, have, or who are your spiritual seniors, not necessarily superiors, but just who have been on the path longer. This isn't very traditional in the West. And people have resistance to authority. If you haven't noticed, <laughs> look at the world around you. But um, in any case, to, to accept, I give my ignorance into, I offer it at the lap of your wisdom and help transform it. And so to study, read, practice, ask questions of the wise, draw from their example, and then to always have, there's a beautiful balance in discipleship of humility and self-effort. Because if you, you have to balance them because if you think, I'm gonna find God by my own effort, I've seen people like that, and they eventually, it, it leads them astray. But if you just say, Lord, by, with your grace, I will give it my best. And with your grace, Master, 
I will walk forward on this in the spiritual life. So balancing humility, self-surrender with self-effort, and to make the guru just in so many little ways, so many little ways, try to think of him as much as you can throughout the day. Maybe put a picture of him by your bed and let his face be the first thing you see before you go to bed and the first thing you see in the morning. And then throughout the day, like Jatish has a, was gifted with a nice uh, Apple watch and he has on the face pictures of master that change all the day. I don't know if you can yeah. pick it up. This happens to be oh, Lahiri Mahashaya and there's master and every time I tap it, a different photo comes up. Anyway. So just different little techniques throughout the day, but then more than outward things, try in your speech, in your actions, in your thoughts, just be asking, does this please you, Master? Is this how you would have me speak to this person? I mean, so often I, I tend to have a more reactive nature. Something will happen and I want to go tell this person something. And then I'll just pause and I'll say, Master, what would you do? And I know he wouldn't do that. <laughs> so, okay, we'll let that one go. So, um, in any case, just to hold, hold that constant presence in your life. And, you know, um, we talk about the guru's grace or God's grace. And the word grace, it's a beautiful word. It has many uses. One is just to move elegantly, to move freely. And that's part of grace, that your soul is moving elegantly and effortlessly you all, through life. You also think of grace as like graceful dancers, beautiful rhythmic movement. Well, I like to think of grace as dancing with an unseen partner, dancing with Guruji through life. And whatever happens, we're just, we'll dance through it, dance through life with thee. I sing thy song and sorrow's gone and joy I am ever free. So the do's and don'ts, don't think you can do it by yourself and do give everything you can with humility and love and devotion to the feet of your guru. Okay, well, my dear, we're going to have to pick up the yeah, pace here. So I think we just each answer one. Yeah, we'll each answer and move on. Move on. Okay, okay um, what does it mean to feel the presence of God? This is Kavita. Kavita asks, what does it mean? mean to feel the presence of God. God as a concept is not only amorphous, but um, because we all have kind of different images and self-images, they can be more or less correct. So I would say don't worry about feeling the presence of God in the sense that somehow God is going to manifest all around you. But anything that reminds you of something higher. So God manifests in different places. Anytime your heart opens in love or friendship, if you just recognize it, that's the presence of God. Anytime a wise thought comes into your mind, God manifesting in your mind is wisdom. Anytime you feel happy or especially joyful, that's God manifesting in your life as joy. So if we want to have the presence of God more tangibly, try to feel joyful. 
Try to answer wisely or think wisely. Try to feel with love. Listen, sound is another thing. Look upward into the spiritual eye. Light is another way that God manifests. Energy is another way. So any of these manifestations of God, when they come, recognize that that's the presence of God. When they don't come, try to get them to come. So I think that's probably enough of that one. Okay. Jagadish asks, can a person follow two gurus? Well, I'll ask the question back to you, Jagadish. Can a person follow two trails at the same time? No, you have to follow one. Maybe, but then you have to understand, what I read behind this question is, if I have a guru, but I'm also drawing inspiration from something else, yes, you can draw inspiration from other things. In the beginning, it's better not to. In the beginning of your discipleship, better just to focus on one. But then, in fact, Master was very strict with his disciples about um, only reading his teachings in the beginning. But there was one disciple, I won't mention his name. Uh, he was a direct disciple who has passed away, um, not Swamiji. But he told this man, told this story here at Ananda, when he was a young disciple uh, in Master's ashram, Master told them not to read other literature. But this man thought, oh, it won't hurt if he had under his bed some books of other paths. And of course, Master knew. And Master, one day they were having, all the monks were gathered, and Master said, naming this man, we'll call him Ramu, that was his name. He said, Ramu here is a spiritual prostitute. He said that publicly. And the man, this man told that story publicly to us. So he was trying to drive home the point. But having said that, Swamiji, for example, drew great inspiration from Ananda Ma. He knew she wasn't his guru. Master, there was never a question. But he drew inspiration as a form of divine mother. I true draw great inspiration from Ananda Ma. I always have, since I first heard of her many years ago. But there was never a question. She was my guru. And so, no, there is... And to further emphasize this, when the soul, the spark of God, which is the individual soul, separates from cosmic being, cosmic awareness, there is a preordained guru, a preordained channel to bring that soul back into oneness with God. And so we have one guru. We can have many sources of inspiration but we can't follow two paths at the same time. Okay, Carol says, how do I accept the unacceptable? I practice surrender to God's will and I have prayed about this problem for 20 years. It's a very, very good question and especially apt in the world that we live in where you look around and you see a lot of things that just plain seem spiritually wrong and do you accept them no you do not have to accept them but there's a subtle difference here if you see a person who is acting unacceptably differentiate between the action the activity and the person try to accept the person because negating the person 
will increase the negativity of that person. And so try to accept the person, but you don't have to accept the behavior of that person. And so if you can discriminate between those two, then it helps. But otherwise, you'd get into a conundrum where you see that something is very obviously wrong, and it doesn't seem right, and then you're supposed to say, oh, I'm supposed to accept everything. Well, no, you're not. You're not supposed to accept a lot of behaviors and a lot of um, aspects of, of life. Just uh, differentiate. And this is especially important among those that are close to you because Davy and I are often asked this question about my child has this behavior pattern. How can I accept that? Well, you, you, you know, if your child is using drugs, you should not accept that. But you need to give your child love nonetheless. Well, if we're all, if the same thing would apply to your brother or your sister who might be misbehaving, well, we're all brothers and sisters. So don't accept the behavior, but do accept the person. Okay. We'll take, we have many more questions, but I'm going to ask uh, our online team, do we have questions being submitted online? How many? Five. Okay, well, we'll answer a few more, then we'll go to the online questions. So this is from Vinata, and she, it's an interesting question. To be truly free and to be truly in love, is that the same thing? How to harmoniously being in love with your partner and being free in God? Well, it's an interesting question, isn't it? So I think let's start with being free. And to be free in your heart comes from loving God first and foremost. And with that love of God in your heart, then we love everything without attachment, purely, deeply. And sometimes, you know, in a married couple um, who have been meditating together for years, when sometimes at the end of the a meditation, you just look into the other person's eyes and you see only God there. And the love you feel for God, you know, it's that, that is what you're loving in the other person. So I think to truly have a, if you find yourself in a relationship situation and uh, try to understand that the deeper you are able to love God, the more deeply you're able to love and appreciate everyone in your life. And it becomes so beautiful, so beautiful. You can look at a little lizard crawling on the steps of your house, and you just are, in, it's the most endearing little thing, like it's your child. And um, so being free in God enhances your ability to love your partner, to accept your partner, to see the highest in your partner, or your children, or your friends, or even your enemies. To love God is to love all unconditionally and totally. Okay, um, I'm going to answer two at the same time because they're sort of related and they relate to children. It says, uh, with, yeah, this is from Melanie. 
Hello and blessings to all. That's a nice way to start, Melanie. With my children in mind, is it better to lead by example than to try to teach them, as I don't have answers to all their questions? Um, yes, it is better to lead by example. That's what they're really going to take away anyway. Um, they, they won't really remember uh, if you're trying to teach them something. They won't remember the teaching nearly as much as the love and caring and concern. So do lead by example. And then Valerie asks, I'm the mom of a toddler. And when I catch myself noting anxiety or panic about COVID-19, what are SOS mechanisms? SOS is a call for help. What are quick me mechanisms to quickly recenter, gain stillness in life force? The daily meditations are great to prevent, but what about to treat when worries take over? Very, very good question and pertinent now when there is so much concern, anxiety, and, and fear that are around. So here again, if you're feeling concern or panic um, and you uh, project that to your toddler, that isn't going to help your toddler do any better. So your example is going to be more important to your toddler than anything that you might be able to say, especially at that young age. So, first of all, and very quickly, Master said about this, not necessarily in particular, but when very difficult circumstances come, he said, do your best to take practical um, preventative measures and then have faith and leave the rest to God. And so do what you can, but don't dwell on taking practical measures over and over and over about obviously masks, social distancing, washing your hands, the common sense things that we know can help. Do those, of course, but worrying about the virus is not going to help you or your toddler. But sometimes worries come unbidden into the mind. What to do then? What is the SOS for that? Usually when the mind gets roiled like that, you can't think your way out of it. You can't reason your way out of it because fear or panic is emotional. It's of the heart. It isn't of the mind. And so don't try to reason your way out of it. The heart, remember, uh, we've been teaching this week that life force, breath, and mind are connected. So if you're feeling anxious, then do some deep breathing and give whatever you're feeling to God. And then try to get centered in yourself. Another thing that can happen uh, helpfully is have a chant or perhaps a affirmation that you use kind of as a antidote to worry. Okay, we'll do this last one, even though we do have more written. This is the last one we'll take from the written, and then we'll move on to those that have been submitted live. This is from Mary, and it's a very good question. Um, a dear friend is getting more and more forgetful. 
Her mother had dementia, and she feels that she will have it too. Would meditation be helpful for her? She was always in my prayers. Can I pray for her in a special way? Well, this is um, something that, and this situation where we see a friend or a relative beginning to be forgetful or moving towards dementia, it's, it's not uncommon, and it's difficult. It's difficult to see someone you knew who was so sharp and so clear and so buoyant. All of a sudden, they just seem like a shadow of themselves. But remember, there was a wonderful disciple of Master, uh, Kamala Silva, who wrote The Flawless Mirror. I believe Asha mentioned her in her talk. And, um, and at the end of and she was a great s- disciple. Not, I mean, more than disciple. She was, I think, found liberation. But at the end of her life, she had advanced dementia. And she had no one to care for her. So we brought her here to Ananda for a while until finally she, we couldn't care for her needs medically. So we put her into an assisted living home. But someone was saying to Swamiji, Oh, Swami... How, how could this possibly happen? And he said, oh, it's just the mind. That's not her soul nature. And so the most important thing when you see your friends beginning to diminish, don't change the way you relate to them. You keep relating to them as you know who they really are. And that will help them to remember it themselves, perhaps. But just don't... It, what happens... It's a very lonely state, dementia. And we, as the more isolated we become, the worse it becomes. And what, what I've seen in people that we've been working with, constant companionship or regular companionship really helps them to come out of it to a certain degree. So would I recommend meditation for your friend? Not necessarily if she hasn't begun the practice yet, because meditation needs a focused mind, and she may, it may be just frustrating for her. But try to find ways where she, whether you yourself or other friends or social activities, where although with the virus those are limited, but nevertheless, with phone calls, try to make her feel a, a circle of friends and caring around her, people, other people caring about her. And this will help her stay who she is. And, and then as the decline happens again, even if they no, uh, no longer can hold a conversation, you can still relate to their soul, relate to their... Because that still is there. That never changes. The mind may become ossified, but the soul awareness never changes. So relate to the highest in them. Find ways that they cannot feel isolated. And yes, pray. Pray that they themselves can feel God's presence in their life. Okay, so we'll start with some online questions. Thanks, Jyotishan Devi. So here's one. Uh, If we are sick, some of these are from the Spanish ministry also. If we are sick and we try to heal, are we going against God's will? Absolutely not. Do everything you can to try to heal. God wants you to be in perfect health. And it's the blockages somehow in your karma or your understanding or your habit patterns that are 
contributing to the illness. So by trying to do what you can to heal yourself, you're actually going toward God's will, not away. To not do anything would be to go away from God's will. So, so don't worry about that aspect of it. On the other hand, do accept whatever comes. Because don't think that uh, success in healing is uh, uh, necessarily a sign that, oh, you've pleased God, therefore I'm, I'm healed. Any more than driving in a city street and getting a parking place is a sign of God's favor for you. God it's doesn't... Not? Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, maybe for me it is. I'm, I, I won't go past that. But um, don't, don't, God's love is there for you regardless of anything. The key here is to try to be high, try to be in tune with his higher principles. And perfect health is one of his higher principles. So try to be in tune with that. Do what you can in a practical sense and then accept the result. I'll just add briefly, uh, and don't, if, don't identify with your illness. Swami Kriyananda had, for many decades, he had one health problem after another, and he kind of indirectly did admit that he was taking on other people's karma. But his medical file was like that, uh, just one thing after another. And one time he was seeing a new specialist, and uh, the special, we weren't there, but a friend of ours was there, and the specialist said, how is your health, sir? And Swami said, excellent. And, you know, then the man looked at his file and didn't know, couldn't align the two things. So, but Swami never identified with the problems of his body. Okay, next question, Sagar. So related to the question of taking others' karma, somebody asks, again from the Spanish ministry, can we transfer someone's karma, such as an illness, to ourselves, and is it wise to do so? Okay, can we transfer someone else's karma to ourselves and as a wise to do so? Well, it's a very, only a very high soul can do that. Uh, master could. Swami kind of, as I said, indirectly admitted that he, that he was doing that. But for most of us, we can have empathy, we can have compassion, we can have prayer, but... Um, you know, I was just reading an autobiography about the life of Teresa Neumann, the stigmatist that Master visited in Bavaria. And it said the uh, stigmata appeared to her from the time when she was praying for another, a young man in her village who was about to enter the monastery, the priesthood. He had a very bad throat disease, and she prayed that it would be transferred to herself and receive this. Then that's when the stigmata started. So she could sustain it. But for most, it's, it's not something necessarily advisable. You know, you can... You, because until, while we're still bound in the ego, if we take someone else's karma, it will only accrue to our ego. When a master takes on someone else's karma, it doesn't affect them spiritually, but it would affect us if we are still bound in the ego. So that's the problem with it. Next. That was a good answer. I'm, I don't have anything more to add. Really? Yes. 
So here's one more. Uh, when people have mental illnesses, are they possessed by evil spirits? When people have mental illnesses, are they possessed by evil spirits? Not always, but sometimes. And so um, there, are, there are many, many... Uh, well, if you talk generally speaking about any downward pulling force, also mental illness, you could say that's a satanic uh, influence. But here I think the question is more, has an entity, another entity entered into that person? And generally speaking, that would not be the case, but it does happen in some cases. And so uh, I would say pray for, pray for the person, pray for Divine Mother, to help that person and surround them. Master said that you can surround yourself by uh, drawing, placing your palms together, draw a circle of light around yourself, chanting Om Tat Sat, Om Tat Sat, Om Tat Sat, Om Tat Sat. Om tat sat. Um, that's the qualities of God. So you draw a circle of light with God's qualities around you. You can do the same for a person who is um, either mentally ill or possessed. And as I say, both can be true. Um, surround them with light. Uh, if they're acting negatively toward you, Master said to mentally draw a cross of light between you and them. And that will be a protective device. So uh, I, I would say that that's the answer to that. But I would also say that don't open yourself to negative influences. Don't open yourself to lower astral entities because they do exist. And if you become too open or through the use of drugs sometimes or other ways where your mind doesn't have possession of itself, then some other entity can take possession of you. And I've I met someone in India who had, uh, had not only had that, but freed himself. He was a very, very high soul, uh, able to manifest things at will, um, and very high soul from the time that he was quite young, from five or six years old. He went off to the Himalayas and studied under masters. But through the practice of tantric practices, he ended up being possessed by an astral spirit. And just a few months before I met him in India in 1974, he had been able, with the help of his guru, to throw off that. that. So um, Master too said that this can happen. But as I say, um, it isn't the first thing that you would think if somebody is exhibiting mental illness. Um, there's a saying in, among doctors that, uh, about diagnosing someone. They, it's that if you hear hoofbeats, think of horses, not of zebras. And so, meaning, think of the most likely cause. Most likely cause of mental illness is imbalances in the brain, brain chemistry, and so on, as opposed to uh, possession. Okay, so this is from Peggy. 
Master said that we'll see our loved ones again when we die. But what if they have already reincarnated by that time? That's a, <laughs> have you ever thought about that? I have. Um, I think we think of the different planes, causal, astral, physical plane, as sort of like separate countries, you know, you have to cross the border. I don't think it's like that, really. I think they're, in fact, Master said that the astral world is a part right now of the physical world. We just can't, remember on Monday, Jyotish was talking about the spectrum and tuning in, and we just can't see it. But that's how um, Sri Yukteswar, he couldn't see Babaji because he was hiding behind the sunbeams. And so whether our dear ones have reincarnated or not, we can still feel their presence. I was very close to my mother. She died um, almost 40 years ago, and um, 30 years ago, sorry, 30 years ago. And I think, well, maybe she's incarnated again. Maybe she's a little child. But her essence is very much with me. And whether she's in a body of a child or whether she's still in the astral world, it doesn't really matter. She's still, I feel her vibration. And so the, remember the forms are shifting. We've been so many different forms. We wear so many different masks, not to speak of protective, personal protective equipment. Um, but if we can just realize that, and just like master, you know, how many roles has he played? How many forms has he taken for all of his disciples? Arjuna and William the Conqueror and Ferdinand and Yoganandaji. And yet each of his disciples will see him in a different way. And so don't think of them, essentially what I'm saying is the three realms of existence, causal, astral, physical, they're not separate countries. They're all, they, they coexist at the same time. Okay, this is from Hanuman. Is it possible that the soul actually incarnates on all three planes, causal, astral, and physical, at once? What might it look like? What might that look, like? What might that look like? Well, I've never heard the question, nor have I heard any of the masters ever say that that would happen. We have enough problem being on one plane at a time, so... Um, what can happen is when a very, very advanced soul who's already a jivan mukta, that means freed, but they still have karma to pay off. Uh, so they would already be in nirbhakalpa samadhi. Uh, they can incarnate in more than one body on a plane in order to work off karma more quickly. But I've never heard of anyone um, incarnating on several astral, uh, causal, astral, and physical at the same time. On the other hand, we carry within us the causal, astral, and physical bodies in any case. So, um, as I say, we have enough trouble dealing with the here and now. Um, we don't need to have to worry about being on other planes at the same time. And I'll just close. I guess we should, we have a few more questions, but... Um, Okay, so we're getting thumbs up from the audience, um, <laughs> from our friends, not the audience. Just to add to what Jyotish said, once um, it, there was a story from the life of Ananda Moima, 
where she was with her disciples and it's that song. She was laughing and they were having a wonderful time. And all of a sudden she froze. And I mean, as though the life had left the body. And she was like that for several hours. And finally with a little, you know, quiver and a laugh, she came back and uh, they said, Ma, where did you go? And she said, I was fighting a battle on the astral world. And so she did, she, uh, so she was in the physical world, but at the same time in the astral world. So with great souls, they probably can traverse different planes, but for most of us not. Okay, well, um, we can answer these two together is okay. one. Uh, you want me to do that one? You... Sure. Okay, so this is from Catherine, and she's asking a question about Swami's uh, views on psychotherapy. She said, I, I gather from his early talks, he wasn't that in favor of them. But she said, I think that was more the Freudian approach. And yes, Catherine, you're right. He didn't think it was a value just to dwell on, uh, well, what my mother did to me and sort of rehashing emotions and patterns. But um, he, uh, he did refer people to go to uh, healers to go to people that could help them break through certain energy patterns. Uh, he went, he advised some people I know to go to past life readers so they could help see more clearly what was the, what was the kind of long-term trajectory that was causing this problem in this life. So no, he was not a poet. He didn't say, oh, just meditate, you'll uh, overcome it. He was a very practical man. And, but he, did not think that uh, under, because he understood the teachings of his guru of yoga, that just going over old negative things, he said that just reinforces your identity with those things. We have to work with energy, work with new flows of energy so that we can break through. So I think that. Yeah, I'll add to that. Um, one of the great, uh, Catherine refers to the fact that I studied psychology, which is true. One of the great um, missing elements in um, most psych psychoanalysts and uh, psychologists is that they don't take into account reincarnation. Now there's new schools of thought in psychology that accepts reincarnation. And so, if you bring your own problems into this lifetime and then uh, you have those problems and you start trying to figure out what your father or your mother did to you to cause those problems, you're in a hopeless, no matter how much you talk about it, you're in a hopeless quagmire with that. Maybe it will help a little bit release some subconscious uh, things, but we have to... Who is your real father? Who is your real mother? It's you in a past incarnation. That's who's given birth to the personality that you have. So if, if a, a system works with the understanding of the soul nature as opposed to just the nature of the mind, then Swami was supportive of that. And he was, he was uh, in fact... Uh, was developing something that he called directional psychology. I think that's, yeah, that's the term that he used, um, which, which um, many uh, more of the 
more modern schools are working with uh, that kind of thing now. So it wasn't that he was opposed to psychiatry or psychology, just the way that it was practiced. This is from Johnny, and Johnny says, I feel like in the midst of Master's 100th anniversary of coming to America and all the, uh, the upheaval currently going on in the world, now would be a good time for signs of mutual respect and easing of tensions between SRF and Ananda. I understand that the ball is likely in SRF's court, but what can we do as disciples to help narrow this gap? Well, that's a nice question, and it's an important question. I, th I think how I would answer it, Jatish, can also, we can both answer this perhaps since it's the last one. Let's look at what we share in common, and that's utter devotion and life dedication at the feet of our guru. If we can realize that whatever organization you belong to are no organization whatsoever, if you share that same love for the wonderful mission of Yogananda in this hundredth year of him coming to the West, of our great line of gurus, if you love and appreciate that, that's the, that's the most important thing in our own lives, mutually. And the rest are just details. You live here, I live there, your organization is structured this way, ours is that way. What difference does any of that make? The only important thing in each of, in the lives of people who are in different organizations is our common love for God and Guru. And if we can just keep remembering that and sharing that, and if negative thoughts are shared or negative words or judgment or condemnation, just withdraw from that energy and just remember we all love Master. And that's all that's important. I'll just add this to it, that um, change has already started on a grassroots level. The devotees of SRF, the devotees of Ananda, by and large, don't have problems with each other. And in many cases, they don't understand why other people would have problems with that. It, it's confusing to them. And so, in my estimation, the essence of the problem came down to that whether Swami Kriyananda and Ananda had the right and the blessing to share Master's teachings, or whether that was only SRF's purview in order to do that. And I'll just speak, Devi and I, I'm the Dharmacharya of Ananda, meaning the, uh, you know, the title is the leader of all Ananda worldwide. I would love for them, for there to be more acceptance and friendship between the two organizations. I hold no desire in my, in my heart or on my part to see the two separated. I hope that that old thought pattern is beginning to change because Ananda is going to continue to share Master's teachings. We're helping thousands, millions of people doing that. I hope that that will gain acceptance and not we're not trying to merge the two organizations,
but I do hope that it will gain acceptance of our right to share these teachings and a friendly, cooperative spirit of two brother-sister organizations that are doing their best in their own way to accomplish the same goal of bringing Master's light into the world and of practicing it themselves. And I would, as Swami in his will, um, part of his will was that, that people should, uh, of Ananda, should do what we can to bring about a greater sense of cooperation and friendship between the two organizations. And so I would love for that to happen. So maybe we'll just close with a prayer now. And thank you all. These were really fine questions. And uh, I think people, whether you ask them or just listen to the answers, I think we all got a lot out of it. So let's close with a prayer. Heavenly Father, Divine Mother, Friend, beloved God, great masters, Jesus Christ, Babaji Krishna, Lahiri Mahashaya, Swami Sri Yukteswar, beloved Guru, Paramahansa Yogananda, saints of all religions, friend and guide Swami Kriyananda, we humbly bow to you all. Unite our souls in divine friendship and harmony throughout the world. May the light of the human heart grow ever stronger in your light. And may this divine light drive away all darkness all fear and disease, and may we awaken to a new age of global peace and harmony. Om Peace. Thank you so much for joining us.